Welcome back to another episode of Stories with Brad. I'm Brad. I wanted to take care of a few things here up front. Um, Acknowledge all the new people here and uh, let everybody know what my goals are with Stories with Brad. I'll be using these stories to put together either a feature film of my travels or a book. Whichever seems to be the better path once we get down the road, uh, we'll make that choice there. I'm aiming for one story a week, and after about a year, I'm guessing that's going to be about it. At that point, I'll keep the group involved in how everything gets cut up. So if any of these stories resonate with you, let me know. Um, But just so everybody is aware, I'll likely be cutting 80 plus percent of everything that's here. So this is just a way that I've used in the past to untangle and discover uh, the best final product. So I just thought I would make it public. I believe the Baja series is a great encapsulation of how my travels went. Um, Things went well, then something happened, then I had to overcome some struggle, then things went well again. It's that sine wave of life. But one thing that I'm doing is I'm learning a lot about writing because I've never written before. And writing these feels a lot like when I was learning the very basics of video. Um, I tried to focus on one aspect of video for each video that I was creating so that I could learn a new skill with every video. And I'm doing the same thing with writing. So you may not notice the small nuance, but I'm, I'm trying to build my writing capabilities slowly over time with each episode. And as I'm likely to have 30 or 40 of these episodes, hopefully by the time I get to the end, and then I cut everything down and basically rewrite a final draft. And uh, by that time, I'll be more skilled as, as a writer and as a audio producer. Um, that's the plan at least. But Baja was definitely a time when I was kind of LARPing, you know, live action role play for those who aren't familiar. Um, I learned a lot of lessons in Baja and I met a lot of really great people and I think they helped me then, but also now as I think back, um, they helped me in ways they didn't know nor did I. Yeah, I really hope you enjoy this episode. Um, I believe it came out pretty well, and I think they're continuing to get better. So with that, I hope you enjoy Lessons from Baja, California, Part 2. This is a story about people, the paths that cross. A dash of special sauce from the universe may give us the dance of the unexpected. The road combines pathways to a funnel that can bring you adventure, friends, and a whole universe's worth of more. As I've often said, life happens on the road, and the road delivers all types of people. I shouldn't be surprised that some of those I met turned out to be hurt and broken from the past. Some who were once harmed so badly by a past they once loved and trusted, now they find themselves searching for a new path. At the very same moments, they continue to untangle the present. Others are just in search of something new and different. I myself being some part of all of these groups. One group of which I am not a part of is the vacationer, at least in this story. The vacationer and the traveler are rare bedfellows, not because of their past or who they are, but because those pathways don't often cross. Fond memories can lead to new and great undiscovered adventures. 
It was one year later, almost to the day, that I find I was heading back to the sublime desert and deep sandy trails of Baja. Since that previous departure, I had been on a mission of sorts. I craved riding the dirt. I didn't know quite what was happening. I thought I was rediscovering myself in these far-off backcountry destinations. Since Baja, I had found solace in the calm and still national forest across the country. I started this new and incredible journey where I began to traverse states from one border to the other, almost completely off-road. These routes are called backcountry discovery routes, and I bought maps for them to help guide my way. These routes had taken me to some of the most far-off locations in the USA, challenging me in ways I had not been challenged ever before in my life. Washington was my very first backcountry discovery route. From the border of Canada, descending through the Cascade Mountain Range, all the way to the Columbia River Valley, then Oregon. From southern Washington border to the northern border of California, the Oregon route had challenged me with a leg across the desert with no people, no shops, no gas stops, for over 270 miles. Colorado, starting in the north and traversing the Great Rocky Mountains and ending near Durango, New Mexico. 682 miles of dirt and rock therapy. I won't soon forget the sights from Cinnamon Pass and the looks I got from taking the GS to its summit. Then there's Utah, the most challenging of them all. The traverse of Utah from south to north took me across 871 miles along some of the most difficult terrain I had ever been exposed to. Red rock as far as the eye could see. To my own surprise, I conquered the Lockhart Basin, an 80-mile expert-only 4x4 trail on a fully loaded R1200GS. Riding downhill sections was like tossing the bike off a cliff. My large and fully loaded 1200GS jumped and kicked like a bull. If Lockhart taught me anything, it was knowing that sometimes you were along for the ride. To be in control was like trying to hold a handful of sand. The tighter you grip, the more you will lose. Above all, I rode every one of these routes solo most times wild camping, joyfully cooking my dinner over a fire. I picked up that heavy bike so many times it became easy. Even as I became well-worn from the road, I still didn't know what I was riding towards. Well, besides the thrill of danger, that is. As I think back, it was as much torment as it was a test. I was searching for my boundaries like a blindfolded man trying to grab a glass of beer without knocking it over. I didn't know at the time how much I relied on luck. Now, a full year later, I'm back in Baja, back at Coyote Cows. It's amazing to go back to a place you love. You don't see it in the same light because both it and you are now different. All of those Baja memories are special. The real treat is seeing those faces you met a full year before. When some remember you, it's a type of magic. Cal didn't remember me at first, but that's okay. When I asked if I could stay downstairs, his ears perked up and he stopped and turned. Oh, I remember you, but not your friend, pointing at Dustin. It's his first time here. I gotta show him the best of Baja, I said. I was just hoping for some sort of discount since I'm bringing you customers. Dustin just laughed. Cal stared back blankly as he didn't see my joke. That was the year I wanted to break myself. Kinda. Just to feel the pain. And maybe learn where not to touch. This was not the case for Dustin. He came to join me on my ride into northern Baja, maybe expecting a slower-paced adventure. We were good friends back in my Lockheed Martin days, and he had moved on 
as many other high-functioning, career-aggressive types had, I totally understood. I wished him luck, but I sure missed having him around. He's about the same age as me, has less gray hair, of course. But what we did share were similar outdoor ambitions and exploration endeavors. He summited Mount Rainier just a a few weeks after I did my second summit. He made yearly plans for some adventure-type expedition, even though he was married and had a little one at home. As a respectable man, I'd call him overly ambitious to his face, but I doubt he would agree without laughing and changing the subject. We spent very minimal time planning our ride. I was actually caught off guard when he emailed me about a new bike he had bought, a dual sport, on and off-road bike, Suzuki V-Strom. I congratulated him and welcomed him to this new club. I told him the right motorcycle can take you anywhere. Since he had taken a promotion in California a year earlier, we had been in contact by email only, looking for an opportunity to get together. Baja looked like our chance, and I was stoked about our reconnection. I helped him outfit his bike by sending an email full of links, tires, skid plates, bark busters, all the accoutrements. I'd never tell a man what to do with his bike, but held him firm on the tires, skid plate, and bark busters. I told him to be ready to ride rocky, dry riverbeds and control momentum in steep downhill descents. Better be ready for the unexpected, but he's no slouch. I wasn't worried in the least. Although the possibility existed that my definition of easy may not have been his. My friend Benny has a brilliant way of setting up a story. You know it's going to be a great one when he says, Well, and gives a long and dramatic pause, followed by, What had happened was, That's the moment you know Benny was about to tell you he had made a big mistake. And this was his best attempt to blame shift or just laugh about it, because, I mean, what can you do? Oh, how I miss Benny. Sadly, Dustin didn't stand a chance. He was walking into a snake pit, and I never taught him how to play the... whatchamacallit. What does a snake charmer play? Snake flute? Yeah, the snake flute. I never taught him how to play the snake flute. It might be called a pungi, but that's a different story. The desert landscapes of Baja are so beautiful in their minimalist form. Many remote areas are so pleasing to my eye. Seeing the large and small cactus growing around the rocks and in the sand as far as the eye can see. I should give thanks to the stubborn cactus holding down the sand. If not for the cactus, the sand just might reach up to the sky as if to escape its own desolation. Dustin and I talked at length about the sand and the tacos, but I may not have talked enough about the rocks. Maybe, I mean, who can remember such trivialities anyway? Sadly, my memories of that time tell me that I broke him. Not physically, but still. Sorry, Dustin. It's not your fault. Here's the part where I say, Well, what had happened was, we had a magnificent riding day. We managed to get out early from Coyote Cows and on our way to an observatory about a hundred miles south and east. All of this would fall apart in our faces when we both realized I had not considered the thousand-foot cliffs the observatory sat upon. Yeah, no road down to the salt flats below. We had to backtrack, which, long story short, would leave us in a very difficult backcountry section racing against the setting sun, trying to reach Mike's Sky Ranch. Dustin decided, correctly, we should stop. So we stopped. Boiled some water, ate some dried food, I made some popcorn. 
We buried our wallets to the sound of gunshots echoing off the surrounding cliffs. The shots continued for most of the night, but then the sun came up and everything was great. See, no problem. We ended up skipping Mike's Sky Ranch the next day and headed straight to the Sea of Cortez. Well, the next morning in San Felipe over breakfast of chilequiles, Dustin told me he was heading back home. He hadn't committed to any specific time frame, so I wasn't too surprised. Only thankful for his company. Maybe just a touch saddened. I felt like I pushed him a little too much. Either way, I would be heading south alone. I tried to tell myself this could be a spectacular learning moment for the both of us, as I had learned a valuable lesson as well. Everyone's definition of adventure, or maybe stupidity, is measured by a different set of calibrated experiences. And my measurement may be askew. The universe works in mysterious ways. Random. But, at most times, it's for the best. That didn't stop Dustin and I from enjoying the street life of Mexico on foot that day. Walking around, seeing all the sights and sounds as we commented on the flurry of life in open display around the streets of Mexico. It can be deafening at times. Truly, it can make your head spin. The cars and trucks driving by with loudspeakers mounted on the roofs, shouting their services or products. Fruit truck listing all the freshly picked fruit. The gas truck yelling the name of their gas company so those who needed gas can come running. This style of advertisement creates a momentum of explosive movement. You can see people running towards the truck, waving money. You know they are coming, but you never know quite when. My favorite by far, the tortilla delivery guys. They drive their motos around screaming, TORTILLA! At like 7 a.m., With children running towards them, clutching onto 10 pesos their mom had just shoved into their sticky paws before kicking them out the door and telling them, Run! Animo! This in-your-face style of Mexican life may seem abrasive to those who wish to live a quiet, out-of-the-way life in a neighborhood. Maybe I can start a tortilla delivery service when I'm back in Washington. I guess I fell in love with the spontaneous nature of Mexico street life. Expect the unexpected. Dustin was talking about his new job in California and how California is a different world from the rest of the USA when we noticed the orange KTM and then the Toyota pull up to a small taco stand down the road from us. I stopped him and pointed to the rig. Check those guys out. Are they the ones we met back in Ensenada? He said something about random chance, and I reminded him about either going north or south here in Baja. We have to see where they're heading, I said. We slowly made our way in their direction. Motorbikes, cars, trucks, zipping by, creating small clouds of sandy dust with every vehicle. As we approached, we could see their 4x4 set up more clearly. On the roof, they had water and fuel, random pieces of wood they had collected from the sides of the road. Inside, you could see a few hiking backpacks and random traveling items. The four of them traveled in two vehicles, one Overlander 4x4 Toyota and a solo motorcyclist. Three in the Toyota, two guys and a girl. I walked up to the rider. I couldn't remember his name from our meeting in Ensenada, but he had a robust and bushy beard with a high and tight haircut. Let me tell you, that beard was a sight to behold. I turned to Dustin and asked, was his name John? Dustin just shrugged. Let's go talk to them. Maybe they want to head south together. As we approached, John noticed us walking up and gave us the head nod. I waved and opened the conversation. Looks like I'm heading south alone. Where are you guys heading today? Oh, I'm not sure. They have the map, John replied. 
All roads lead to Cabo, I said, with a smile. John was dressed in KTM Orange Fox Moto gear, head to toe, riding a KTM 650. The KTM is a very capable dual sport machine. It will take you down the road at 85 miles per hour without a shimmy in the bars, and then duck into a tight, rocky, and steep trail without missing a beat. The KTM 650 compared to my sturdy R1200GS was a night and day difference, if there ever was one. Many people would laugh as I would roll up in this beast. More than a few times, people straight up told me to turn around before I would regret it. I do my best to smile and avoid confrontation. Mind if we join you guys for a bite? I asked. The group from the truck motioned us to come over and sit at the neighboring table. They took their things off the chairs. Nick had shaggy brown hair and a welcoming smile. He was the driver of the Toyota. He would talk and giggle as he told stories with the greatest of detail. Ryan, well, he was kind of quiet. He introduced himself as a Canadian, now living in Portland. Linda was Ryan's partner. She spoke softly, but when she would laugh, it seemed like it would come from all around you. We spoke wildly about our enjoyment of Baja finally landing on where we planned to be for the night. Both of our groups were excited for the beautiful challenges of Baja and the tacos, of course. We were getting what we came for. John was somewhat new to overlanding motorcycle riding, but fairly acquainted with motorcycles, which is a great place to begin. I asked if I could join the group as they were heading towards Gonzaga Bay. They were camping. I told them about my previous experience nearly one year ago to the day. They laughed along with me as I described the debacles. The Toyota crew were heading back north on New Year's Day, and John planned to continue south all the way to Cabo solo. They seemed to be open to my temporary addition to the group. I could see in Dustin's face he was sad to return home, but now happy with where our eager stupidity had took us the night before. They timidly agreed to allow me to join, but it seemed as if John and I would be teaming up and the Toyota would follow. I think in a way, John was stoked to have a fellow rider to enjoy the motorcycling terrain alongside, and I had a few routes on my map he had not been aware of, so for us, it seemed like a win-win. Our food now finished, we continued on our way. Dustin, back to California, myself, now, with a group I had only just met. The ride to Gonzaga Bay felt identical to the year prior. No progress seemed to have been made on the road in over a year. Although the daylight may have been enough of a change in perspective to make the landscape seem unchanged. John and I seem to have comparable riding styles, not too fast, not making too many stops, being courteous to traffic, etc. We made a stop to pick up food and supplies for the night. On the shelf, I spotted a big bottle of tequila sitting all alone, calling to me. You are coming with me, I thought, thinking back to the last time I had tequila, which was in fact at Coyote Cal's with Eddie. I replenished my supply of tortillas, beans, and fresh panea cheese, and I was on my way. I was set for camping, and I had liquid enjoyment to share with the group. I figured if I was inviting myself along, I could at least bring something to the table. We arrived at the campground just before dark. We walked into the only building, which was a restaurant, to find out who we should pay. The woman instructed us on the sites that were open, and we paid her for our choices. The campground was sort of a parking lot, but open to the Sea of Cortez on one side. It was a muddy beach with a few large rocks positioned on the border between the campground and the beach to slow the erosion. Past the beach, the Isla San Luis Gonzaga now bathed in the orangey-pink light of the setting sun. I set up my tent under a palapa opened the tequila, and poured a heavy dose into a metal cup. Who's ready for tequila? 
I asked, holding the bottle up in the air as if to champion intoxication. The group looked at each other back and forth. Nick slowly walked up with a small cup and said, I'll have a nip. I poured until he said stop, and then I splashed a little more. He laughed. The group continued to set up their camp, and I walked over to the muddy beach to take a few snapshots of the last remaining light. As I was walking up the beach, I was comparing all the highs and lows of my last Baja ride. I was so much more accomplished rider now, and for some reason believed I would be having a higher level experience, although questioning what that even would be. I've always wondered why I meet certain people. The question of how paths cross. I was certainly searching for something, but this group just seemed to be out having a Baja New Year's adventure. Do we all wander, or is that just the thing I do? With every one of my needs met, why do I find myself in perpetual search? And for what? The smell of the stinky mud was becoming overpowering. I suddenly realized I was hungry. Really hungry. And I was drinking liquor on an empty stomach. I'm more of a beer kind of guy. I needed food, and I needed it fast. I walked for a while in the dark, coming back with an empty cup and a pang of hunger burning in my stomach. Those tacos were about six hours prior. Nick came over for another tequila shot while I was warming some beans. We talked about his rig, and he told me all about his plans for building it into a true overland machine. I thought it was pretty close already, but it seems we are always the most critical of the things we are closest to. John was talking about having to fix his wiring on his LED headlight he had installed just before the ride. We agreed the morning light would make the diagnosis and repair much easier. I suddenly realized I was half in the bag. Embarrassed and trying to hide my intoxication, I told everyone I was just tired from day of riding and I would likely call it a night early. I drank too much too quick on an empty stomach. Ryan and Linda started a small fire while I clumsily blew up my air mattress and arranged my sleeping bag in my tent. The group watched on as I dove inside, falling asleep instantly, without even zipping up my mesh fly. In the landscape of perfect introductions, this one may not have been the best. Waking up early the next morning, I felt more than embarrassed, as the bottle of tequila was still sitting on the table staring back at me as if to laugh. It was very early, and I was nearly sweating from the sun. Today was New Year's Eve, and it would be a hot day. We all occupied ourselves with the morning routines of camping, breaking everything down, packing everything away, back into its place. Checking and rechecking, we had all our belongings. John tended to the wiring on his headlight and re-secured it for more washboard sandy punishment. Bikes take a heavy toll from the off-road vibrations. I got my map out, put it on the table. The group gathered around and asked if I was feeling okay. Wearing my sunglasses, I just shook my head and said no. They laughed. I circled Coco's corner on the map. We cannot miss this place or this man, I said. The group agreed, as they had heard about Coco, and wanted to visit as well. Then Linda pointed at the map. What's this place, she asked. A small dashed line indicated a non-paved road led to a small bay with no indication of inhabitants. It was named Bahia de las Animas. Hmm, las Animas. I don't know. Looks like a dead end. It could be a camp, or it could be nothing. And we could camp there, I said. Nick walked up. I don't care where we go, as long as we camp on the beach again, but I sure would like to camp away from people. We looked at each other, and we all agreed. This road, I said, it's a dashed line. So it could be anything from just sand to super gnarly rocks and sand. Everyone just nodded with approval. Ryan piped up. Sounds like fun. We came prepared, Nick added. 
We left in two groups that morning, John and I leaving first and the Toyota crew following. We would make much better time, but wait for them at certain stopping points. Riding together would give us the confidence and freedom of two wheels, without much of the usual hesitation. For the time being, we had a follow vehicle. How posh. Pulling up to Coco's was like a breath of fresh air. We stopped our bikes just inside his gate. The place looked exactly the same as it had when I was there previously. John pulled off his helmet, straightened his massive beard, and then the door from the same trailer I remembered from before flew open with a crash. Coco came out slowly, waving his arm. He invited us over. What happened to his legs, John asked. Sugar is a hell of a drug, I said softly under my breath as we walked his way. As we walked up, Coco offered us food as he did on my first visit. He asked us where he came from and if we needed any help. We didn't need any help, just here for the legend of Coco. He climbed down from his deck onto the sand and started giving his tour. For a moment, he looked at me as if to remember, but then continued on, heading towards the cantina with John in tow. I never had a chance to take any photos last time I was there, so I took the opportunity to snap a few images while John and Coco talked in the cantina. As I walked around his property unencumbered, I thought about all the times I had told the story of coming to his place, how much it had meant to me, but this time it felt flat, different somehow. I was very happy to be here, very happy to see Coco again. That was certain. Maybe I was just hungover. I couldn't put my finger on it exactly, but I continued to snap more photos as I listened to Coco and John laughing. With Coco and John now back at his trailer, Coco went inside to retrieve his book. I walked over to meet them. He came out, put it on the table, looked me straight in the eye and opened it up to my entry from last year. This is you, he said. I nodded in agreement. You looks have changed. But I remember Big Bike, Green Sticker. He pointed to the left side of my bike where I'd put a small Monster Energy drink sticker. I never drank the stuff. I just thought the sticker looked cool. And it was my brother's sticker, so why not? But now he had me thinking about how much my gray hair had come in. So much can happen in a year, and so much did. Coco flipped back to the current page, and John signed the book first. After he signed, Coco marked off John's statement and signature, making a new space for me. While I signed, he asked if I would be coming to the Posada tonight at Alfonsino's. I told him I would not, but I wished him well and told him that night was very special to me and to say hi to everyone from me. He went on about his friends from Gonzaga Bay. Coco was always such a gracious guy. After we exchanged a bro hug, John and I walked back to the bikes. Waving goodbye to Coco, we were on our way to our next stop, Bahia de Los Angeles. John and I arrived well before the group in the Toyota. We parked our bikes on the road next to a small restaurant overlooking the sea. We sat at a plastic table outside and began to take off our motorcycle wares. Soon the rest of the group arrived and we ordered food. Checking my phone for the time, we were looking good. Only about four more hours on the road, and we should arrive back at Bahia de las Animas. While I sat at the table, I googled the translation. It came up with a few different translations, but one in particular caught my eye. Bay of Souls. Wow. What a name for a New Year's Eve campground. I told the group, and we agreed it would be a great place to start the new year. There certainly was excitement in the air about our unknown destination. 
As we were eating, a truck pulling a boat and a trailer stopped in front of us. There were children in the back holding up their fresh catch. The pride in their faces was beaming. Sadly, we didn't have any way to keep the fish cool in the heat of the day. The topic of fishing was instantly brought up as Ryan reminded the group he had brought fishing poles. What dreamlike destination awaited us that was unclear? But we would sleep near a place where the ocean meets the sand. How can you get any better than that? We paid our bills and got the wheels turning. Next stop was a dead end of unknown roads opening to the Bay of Souls. John and I played in the whoops, which followed the gravel road south. My skid plate was playing a rock song I hadn't heard in a long time. Riding with a partner brings many comforts, often unknown to the solo traveler. Our follow vehicle had added further comfort. John and I took turns leading through deep whoops, deep enough even for my overweight GS to catch air now and then. We were in the zone. Playing in that place where your skill meets danger. I was learning how to power slide the GS through sandy turns and more than a few times taking a cactus to the hand and helmet. Getting the rear end to break free on the big bike is a balance in the fine art of traction. If you give up too much, you go down. Too little, and you end up not making the turn. The flat landscape provided us the ability to play as we could see the road well into the distance. Even though we couldn't see every turn, dust would indicate a vehicle. I slowed to check the GPS. We were getting close to our turn. I noticed a faint four-wheel track leading to the north. Cactus were crowding both sides of the tire tracks. I pointed to the track and called out to John, This looks like us, but it hasn't been used in some time. After finding a solid place for his kickstand, John walked up to me flipping open his visor and said, through a thick tangle of beard, I have never seen anyone ride a bike like that before. I could barely keep up. We both just laughed. This was motorcycle heaven, and we were welcome guests. Sometime later, the Toyota rolled up looking like a porcupine, with all manner of collected firewoods stacked upon the roof. John and I hopped on our bikes, and we headed into the deep sand of the final stretch. The GS is a wonderful machine, capable of tasks I do not have the ability for it to achieve. But my sand riding capabilities had progressed, to the extent that I could keep up with John, even through the softest deep sand. Then I started to have a strange taste in my mouth, combined with a cool feeling on my face. I slowed to look in the rear view. I could see blood flowing down my face and into my mouth. Cactus got me. Woohoo, this is Baja, baby! I screamed in my helmet, feeling no pain at all. So we rode, through the deep sand, and around the cactus, painting fresh tracks atop those left before us. Our fresh tracks leading ever closer until all at once opening to the Bay of Las Animas. The entire bay was completely deserted, save one exception. I could barely make out a single trailer at the very north end with no sign of life. John and I rode around, scouting to find the best location from the many sandy fire pits we were privy to. Nick pulled up, parked under a large tree, looked like a distant cousin to the willow. Its branches hang with tiny leaves rustling in the wind. Then he called out, I think this is the spot. Walking up to me, he stopped and said, Your face is bleeding, and walked off with his coffee cup, now holding Pacifico. In a matter of minutes, tents were up, mats and sleeping bags were out, cervezas were open. This was New Year's Eve. We began to explore what felt like an unexplored place. There were signs of people enjoying this location in the past, but the distance of that time was not so easily determined. A table stood proud and alone. It was built from pallet scraps and driftwood held together with rusty nails and baling wire. 
positioned just out of the tide's reach, it was most likely the final resting place for a great many fish. We combed the sandy shores, not knowing what we were looking for, but feeling like we were seeing everything for the first time. Seeing the light in this space, I rushed to get out my camera. I could write 10,000 words about that night alone, but I'll let the images do the talking and leave you with this. This night was a gift for me. These travelers could have declined my request to join for any number of totally legit, rational reasons. In spite of all the reasons to say no, they said, sure, join our group, join our adventure. For that, I'm so very grateful. Linda cooked and cooked and cooked some more, enough food to fill 10 elephants. We ate, we drank, although not too much this night, and we were quite merry. In the morning light of New Year's Day, we took jump pictures. From the thousands of jump pictures I've captured, this one remains in the top five. We slowly and quietly gathered and packed our things. Knowing, once packed up, our ways would part. John and I, heading further south to unknown lands in hopes to reach Cabo by way of sandy trails. Nick, Linda, and Ryan would head back north, armed with fresh memories to satiate the soul, if not only for a short while at least. Those memories made there in Baja de las Animas certainly are treasured ones. Goodbyes said we went our separate ways, north and south, back home and deeper into Baja. John and I, now without a following vehicle, riding ever so slightly more cautious, while more adventurous at the same time. Wild camping brings the most out of the day's ride, a deep exploration of the details, talking about what the other had missed, and laughing in enjoyment over what was endured. I soon found out John was freshly out of the military. This made his stoic, polite nature all the more understandable. He had recently returned from the war, but the war did not define him. Without trying to detour our ride conversation, I thanked him for his service, not only to his country, but for those who didn't have to go because he did. Many don't realize where the strength in the fabric of our military comes from. You cannot have strength without weakness. The soldier does not charge into battle for the pure love of country alone. He or she endures the sacrifices for all the men and women to their side, both left and right, seen and unseen. Under the structure of the military, you learn your strengths and your weaknesses. You learn to lean on those who are stronger in ways you are not, and in turn, seek to reach for those who need your strength. The wounds of war weigh heavy on those who serve, despite time, distance, or shielding. In spite of that, we carry on for ourselves and those we lost. John said less than a few words about his time in, but tangled in those few words were volumes. Getting to know John made me feel the safety of the submarine in ways I had never felt it before. Our daily ride routine went something like this. We would make a loose plan with my paper maps the night before, and I would plot some points on my GPS to try and keep us on track. We were riding into areas I had not ever been before, and for this reason, I was very happy to have a riding partner. Baja is a truly foreign landscape. In life, and in motorcycling, you can learn what you don't know in two basic ways. Think of a child learning about the hot stove. Learning by a third-person point of view, or you can learn by the first-person point of view. When it comes to the stove, I would have rather learned by the third person, but I'm so stubborn, I often must learn in the most painful way. The lessons of the desert don't seem to be any different. Lessons learned are often deleterious and sudden. 
So let me save you the lesson of the dry lake bed. Salt flats fill and dry over long periods of time, over and over. This creates a crust that rides atop a gooey, slimy mud underneath, which waits for you to break through. Not quite as smelly or as deep as the manure pit, but can be just as nasty to get out of. On one afternoon, we were searching for a trail to the coast and began to ride across a vast, open, dry salt flat. Our speeds were under control at approximately 35 miles an hour, when all of a sudden my rear tire lost traction and began to wag the front of the bike. I tried my best to throttle out, but with no success. I went down hard at speed on my left side, sliding a good 30 feet past where my bike had come to rest. The left cylinder dug deep into the mud, and the bike still running as it lay on its side, rear wheel spinning. I tried to scramble to my feet with limited success. Traction control was not functioning, to say the least. Then I noticed John on the ground, just to my right. We both slowly got to our feet and helped each other by picking up the bikes as we skated and slid on the slick, salty mud. John came up laughing. Wow, that was unexpected. I saw you go down, and then I just went down at the same time. He laughed. We were laughing and struggling to upright our bikes, while at the same time covering ourselves in mud. This was Baja. We were in the good stuff, and we were a team. We moved through the landscape with cautious and careful bravery. Our adventures went on like that for days, walking steep sections before riding them, looking for an exit before being trapped in a situation that could make us pay the greatest price, the price of losing time. Adventure motorcycling is a dance of sorts, sometimes a waltz, sometimes a flamenco, and everything in between. Calm adaptation in the exact moment is needed and even unseen by the rider until after it happens. Following donkey trails on the coast, descending steep 4 by 4 paths that would require us to push each other back up while getting a face full of sand and rocks. Eating the tastiest tacos, fresh ceviche, simply put, it was a struggle we both sought. Far out there in the desert, we were getting our money's worth. We didn't know what challenges lay ahead, but we felt like we could conquer whatever Baja could throw at us. Heading towards Loretto, we needed to stock up on food before finding a campsite, but it was getting dark quickly. It had been a long day, and we had only had brunch and whatever scraps we dug out of our tank bags. We were both ready to make camp and eat a feast. Rolling into Loretto, we stopped at the first supermercado or grocery store we passed and bought supplies while we were walking out a gentleman walked up and commented on our bikes we asked him where we could camp for the night and he gave us some loose directions and pointed down the road closer to the center of town and then pointed to the north up the beach we thanked him and stuffed our personal fuel into our tank bags we headed off in search of this unknown campsite, which is often marked with not more than a fire pit. Driving around, we didn't see what he had spoken about and continued to look further and further with the help of the last remaining light. I was in the lead when we pulled up to a very large water crossing. I could see fresh tracks going in one side and out the other, some 20-30 meters away. The water was still as glass, reflecting the sunset. I hopped off the bike and walked into the water about a third of the way, muttering under my breath how it never fails we end up wet at the very end of the day when there's no time to dry from the sun. The whole area looked somehow flooded, but it only came up to my mid-shin, just under the top of my boots. I walked back to John he and his bike now idling next to mine. I pointed at my boot and showed him the level of the water, and he nodded as he was good to go. I jumped back on my bike and headed into the water, standing on the pegs. 
Crossing water features on a bike can be scary. Water presents a great danger to motorcycles, but knowing that, you can balance the risk. I've done it so many times, you kind of get used to it. When there's rushing water, you want to make sure that you don't enter the water at 90 degrees to the flow, or it will take you down, pushing you over. Sometimes, you have to go really slow so the wake doesn't create a wave which will get ingested through the airbox, stalling the bike. In this case, I would soon find that there was a deeper depression, likely the normal river which caused this whole flood, and it was about 18 inches deeper than what I had walked into. I watched in horror as the front wheel descended into the depths and almost completely disappeared. It was fully submerged except for the very top knob sticking out. The bike stalled at the very same time the rear wheel followed to the bottom of the riverbed. There was only silence now. The exhaust was well below the water level. There was no sense in trying to start the bike. As I could hear the bubbles coming out of the exhaust, I was in a full state of shock. I turned the bike's key to the off position and got off the bike without using the kickstand. Water was up to my mid-thigh. This was just about the worst situation you could get in when you were far from home. I called to John to help me push the bike out of the water. There was a ledge that I couldn't see under the water which was preventing me from pushing the fully loaded bike back out. John scrambled off his bike and quickly took off his boots and socks. Entering the cold water in hopes to get this pig out of there without letting it fall over and fully submerging it. With his help, we managed to roll the heavy waterlogged GS motorcycle out to solid ground. I put the kickstand down and let out a gargantuan expletive. John stood calm and asked what I wanted to do. I knew two things. One, there are no perfect answers in these situations. And two, I would need to take the bike apart to evacuate the water, and it was now fully dark. We picked a spot to sleep very close to the water that I just submerged the bike in. It was covered in broken glass, cigarette butts, cactus remnants. I knew I would need to stay positive if I wanted to get through this. We joked about our camping arrangement. We warmed, prepared, and ate our food amongst the broken glass and cigarette butts. Unable to use my air mattress due to the glass, I dried myself with my t-shirt from the day's ride, and we slept under the stars not knowing what challenges tomorrow would bring. In all my travels, in so many countries, the memories that stare back at me with fierce clarity are the ones I made with friends. End of part two. Stories with Brad is a reader-supported publication. To receive new posts and support my work, consider becoming a free or paid subscriber.